You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Human Circus. As the painfully cold December of 1253 became the still painfully cold January through March of 1254, Friar William settled into life at the court of the Mongol emperor, Monka Khan. But as that turned to May and to June, he began to squirm. Monka had granted them a two-month stay on the 4th of January, but though they were never made to feel unwelcome, by early summer, they were really pushing things to the point of impoliteness. William wasn't quite ready to leave yet, though. He waited in hopes of hearing news of those German prisoners that André de Longjumeau had spoken of, the ones who had been moved when their master had fallen afoul of Batu and lost his life for it. But no word of them arrived. He waited in hope of the King of Armenia's appearance, but that wouldn't come until later in the year after he'd left. Finally, as neither German nor king materialized, his thoughts turned to the journey home. Having weathered one Mongolian winter in Monka's camp, he did not relish the thought of waiting long enough to travel home during another, and he sent word to the Khan to inquire about their situation. Soon, he'd be headed home with us following behind, but he wasn't entirely done in the Khan's camp. Hello, and welcome. I'm Devon, and this is Human Circus. At this time, I ask that if you're enjoying the podcast, that you please consider supporting it with ratings, reviews, and spreading the news through your networks of fresh horses. And of course, donations of money are also always welcome. I sometimes refer to it jokingly as avocado or coffee money, but really it's more like monthly hosting money, and sometimes book money. If this were a Patreon campaign, it would be a number of goals away from the avocado and coffee stage. That aside, let's begin. The last time we talked, William was coming to grips with the nature of his new Armenian monk friend and taking part in the great interreligious debate of 1254. Today, we're going to start in and around that period, covering some of his time with Monka's court, before turning back west with him to recover some of what he'd lost, cross an Alexandrian divide, and consider the future of both the Crusades and Latin-Mongol relations. The Mongol court was not still during all that time of squabble, strife, and popping into the Khan's nephews for a drink, which we witnessed last episode. The company was mobile, maintaining their nomadism even as they ruled over enormous stretches of the world. And around the beginning of April 1254, they reached the area of Karakorum, the Mongol administrative capital established by Ogadai. Immeasurable wealth and treasure and material culture had been dragged back there, had been brought to this newborn center of the world from an empire which spanned from Korea to Poland, 
and it was apparently all quite underwhelming. William rated the city as not as fine as the town of Saint-Denis, and the Saint-Denis Monastery as worth ten of Karakoram's palace. But we are here to talk about Karakoram, not Saint-Denis. The Mongol city was surrounded by mud walls set with four gates, at which different kinds of trade occurred, in grains, sheep, and goats, cattle and wagons, and horses, respectively. Within those walls, there was a Persian quarter where traders gathered, there was a Chinese quarter full of craftsmen, there were palaces for the court secretaries, there were twelve temples, two mosques, and one church. Most impressive of all, to William's eye, was the Khan's great palace, biannual home to his drinking sessions of Easter and June, and set amongst cruder, barn-like structures housing treasure and supplies. William thought the palace like a church, with its middle nave, its two rows of pillars and three doors on the south side. At the north end, at the head of the church, sat the Khan, and a flight of stairs ran up towards him from either side. Perhaps the most striking feature of the palace sat at the entrance, and had only just been completed. It was the work of a Parisian silversmith who'd been captured by the Mongols, and it sounds like quite the contraption. William describes silver branches, leaves, and fruit affixed to a large tree made of silver, with four silver lions at its roots, each one containing a conduit pipe. And there were four pipes to match those leading into the tree, all topped by serpents with their tails curling round the trunk. What was this all for? Well, one pipe was for wine, another refined mare's milk, a third for a honey drink, and a fourth for rice ale. When the Khan called for something to drink, the word would be passed along by servants to a man concealed within the trunk of the silver tree. And that man, either overjoyed to have something to do or terribly bleary from having just been woken up, would blow on a pipe causing the angel atop the tree to sound its trumpet. Apparently bellows had initially been experimented with, but then a human found to be necessary. Then, some servants would pour the appropriate liquid into their pipes up above, while others down below would catch them in basins and bring them off to the Khan for his enjoyment. It was all delightfully cumbersome, unnecessary, and silver. While in Karakorum, the friars celebrated Easter with a great crowd of Hungarians, Alans, Russians, Georgians, and Armenians. William heard public confessions, and he preached a fairly dangerous message one which spoke to an issue I've mentioned before, that conflict between Christian ideals and the life one had to live. The Mongols had carried off much of other people's belongings, William said, and thus, these conquered people before him, forced to live among the Mongols, might permissibly steal from them the necessities of life. However, they were on no account excused in attacking fellow Christians, and should sooner let themselves be killed. He makes no mention of how this last injunction was received, only that he rather suspected that the Nestorians would soon denounce it to Monka, and expecting them to do so, he proclaimed himself willing and ready to state the same before the Khan himself. All considered, the occasion was held to be a happy one, for more than sixty people had been baptized by the Nestorians on Easter Eve. There were other sources of community there, too. The friars dined one night with that Parisian artisan who'd crafted the Khan's silver booze tree, joining a company that included a man named Basil, whose father was English, and a Hungarian-born woman whose mother was French. 
There's no mention of what they ate, but William counted it a most jovial dinner. However, jovial or not, they were going to need to be moving on at some point. William, as I said, got the ball rolling, and soon he heard back from the Khan's secretaries, inquiring again as to why he and Bartholomew had been visiting them this whole time, a question one might have thought settled over the last five months. But as it turned out, and as I mentioned at the end of last episode, Louis' letter was lost, and with it the Khan's memory of the whole matter. So William explained again how they had come to be there, adding, now that the letter no longer hung over his head, that he had come because it was his duty to preach the gospel to all. The next day he received his answer. The Lord Khan says you have been here a long time. He wishes you to return to your own country, and asks whether you would be willing to take his ambassador with you. Just as Carpine had before him, William refused, politely explaining that being but a poor monk, he would be unable to protect the ambassador in the hostile lands they would need to pass through, and that, therefore, he could not risk it. Whether this was his only motivation, or he was mindful of the threat posed by such Mongol visitors as scouts for an invasion to come, he does not say. William did have one last audience with Monka, one that Bartholomew with his lifetime ban could not attend. There, on the eve of the friar's departure, the Khan spoke on the topic of religious belief, drinking four times while he spoke, William thought, and William waited for the translation. We Mongols believe that there is only one God, through whom we have life and through whom we die, and towards him we direct our hearts. But just as God has given the hand several fingers, so he has given mankind several paths. And then he turned accusatory. To you, God has given the scriptures, and you Christians do not observe them. You do not find in the scriptures that one man ought to abuse another, do you? And likewise, you do not find that a man ought to deviate from the path of justice for financial gain. So then, God has given you the scriptures, and you do not observe them. Whereas to us he has given shamans, and we do as they tell us and live in peace. Monka made it clear that he did not include William in his accusations, and a secretary spoke up to vouch for the total lack of greed William had displayed, even when given opportunities for blameless gain. But it was also pretty clear that the Khan wouldn't be seeking baptism any time soon. Monka promised provisions for the friar's journey and an escort to the kingdom of Armenia, and asked in turn that William take a letter with him. Then, he said, there are two eyes and one head, and yet in spite of being two, they have only one sight. And where one turns its glance, so does the other. You came from Batu, and by way of him, therefore, you must return. Far from a subservient position, Monka firmly placed Batu as his equal neighbor in the great skull of Mongol leadership. As their time together drew to a close, William asked if he might have the Khan's approval to return again once more referencing the missing Germans as he did so. Monka said it was certainly acceptable for him to come, if his masters were to send him. But William pushed on. What if he was not sent? Whether or not envoys were going to be sent, did he have the Khan's own permission to return? After a long silence, Monka replied, You have a long journey ahead. Recruit your strength with food, so that you may reach your own country in good health. The friar left, feeling powerless and wishing for the strength to make miracles and humble this great emperor. 
In the following days, the letter was prepared, and William generally took in the goings-on of the court. An ambassador from India happened through, with eight leopards and ten greyhounds, and an envoy from the Seljuk Sultan with rich gifts, gifts to which the Khan apparently replied that presents were all very well, but what he really needed was men. And then there was the envoy from the Abbasid Caliph of Baghdad. The Caliph had less than four years to live, and his dynasty would be ended, his city sacked, and its inhabitants massacred, when the Mongols besieged it in 1558. For now, though, the future was uncertain. William heard talk from some that they had made peace, and that the Caliph had pledged to provide 10,000 horsemen. Others claimed that Manka had demanded the Abbasids destroy their fortifications, to which their ambassador was said to have retorted, When you remove all your horses' hooves, we shall destroy all our fortifications. Eventually the letter was ready. It addressed itself as an edict, as a command, to King Louis, ruler of the French, and to all other rulers and priests to the great Frankish people. Frankish here standing in for a much broader category than the people of France. Interestingly, the letter then seems to have set out to erase all previous communications. The order of the everlasting God was issued to Genghis Khan, it read. But neither from Chinggis Khan nor from anyone else after him has this order reached you. The 1248 embassy to King Louis was written off as that of a liar, while the letter that Langemot brought back was dismissed because it had come from the late Guyuk's wife. And Manka told William that she was the worst of witches, and that with her sorcery she had destroyed her entire family. Finally, after establishing the context of the letter and its delivery, it got down to business. It is the order of everlasting God that we have made known to you. When you hear and believe it, if you are willing to obey us, you should send your envoys to us. In that way, we shall be sure whether you wish to be at peace with us or at war. When in the power of the everlasting God the entire world has become one in joy and peace, then it will emerge what we shall do. But if on hearing and understanding the order of the everlasting God, you are unwilling to observe it or to place any trust in it, and say, our country is far away, our mountains are strong, our sea is broad, and relying on this you make war upon us, how can we know what will happen? He who has made easy what was hard and brought near what was far distant, the everlasting God, he knows. After all that effort to supersede previous communications, this one doesn't seem to establish anything particularly new. Be at peace with us, or suffer what God alone can know. For wherever in the wide world you may be, you are on our land. It was by now a pretty well-trod path, with peace really meaning submission, and Guyuk had said something very similar in the letter Carpine had taken home. However, that embassy to Louis, which Monka dismissed as a liar's work, had been sent by someone who Monka had done away with in his violent cleansing of Ogadai partisans upon coming to power. Additionally, remember that this liar's embassy was the one that had sounded the king out on the idea of military cooperation, and had let it be known that Guyuk Khan and certain of his family members were baptized Christians. Monka Khan had in the end made it pretty clear to William that he was not a Christian. And, however a Christian may have taken the repeated reference to everlasting God, in his letter to Louis and the lords of Europe, he did the same. 
Message received. William was ready to come home. And he found out just before his departure that Bartholomew wasn't coming with him. Winter or not, the other friar simply couldn't face the return trip. And without William's knowledge, he'd gained permission to remain in Karakorum with the Parisian silversmith. You're not leaving me, he told William, whose first reaction was to say he would stay there by his fellow friar's side. I am leaving you, since if I accompany you, I see danger to my body and my soul, for I cannot face the unbearable hardship. So it was that on July 8th or 9th of 1254, William took a tearful leave of his colleague and made to go, together for the first three weeks with the Indian envoys who were taking the same route, and then with just his interpreter, a Mongol guide, a servant, and an order entitling them all to a sheep every four days, if they could find someone to give them one. They were taking a different route than they'd come by, and for more than two months, they traveled towards Batu with no trace of any construction other than graves. They passed only one town on the way, a small village which could provide no food, and for two and sometimes three days in a row, they consumed only mare's milk. Maybe Bartholomew had made the right choice. They reached Batu's camp on September 15th, a year after they had left it, and there they found the unfortunate Gosset, their servants, and Nicholas the purchased boy. Gosset and the others were alive, but they were in rough shape. It was a potentially pretty miserable limbo they'd been caught up in, and a reminder of all the inglorious side stories found at the edges of history, many of them irrecoverable. We don't know much about the year in their lives, but William does say it was only the king of Armenia's intervention, drawing their plight to Sartak's notice, which had saved them at all. It was starting to be generally assumed that the friars were dead and never coming back, and Mongols were already asking the stranded Gosset if he knew how to tend cattle and milk mares. Before William's reappearance, they'd been beginning to appear very available. Batu asked William where he wanted to go, and if William had only known that Louis was by that point already home in France, he might have made his way quickly there from Batu's territory into Hungary and so on. But he didn't. It would be a month before Batu could find them a guide, and even then the man in question seemed concerned more than anything with maximizing his gain out of the whole transaction. There were to be no payments forthcoming from William, so despite the Franciscans' instructions to the contrary, the guide made arrangements to escort them to the Seljuk Sultan in Anatolia, where he hoped he would be generously rewarded. On October 18th, they headed south, traveling along the Volga and its branches, and compelled to cross them seven times by boat. Along this stretch, William reconnected with some of the belongings he'd been forced to leave behind with Sartak's people on the way east. He recovered most of their vestments, their silver vessels, and their books, but he never got back that illuminated psalter which the queen had given him. Early November brought them to the mountains of the Alans who still held out against the Mongols. The threat of raiders emerging to attack their livestock necessitated Mongol guards watching over the passes and an armed escort for William and his company, twenty men who brought them to the Iron Gate. They were now on the coast of the Caspian Sea in present-day Dagestan, and between the water to their east and the impassable mountains of the North Caucasus to the west, was a small plain barred entirely by a long and narrow walled city through which travelers were forced to pass. Beyond the city was the remains of another barrier, 
one with a history that stretched into legend. William identified it as the Gates of Alexander. And this was, of course, Alexander the Great he was referring to. In particular, what we're talking about is from the Romance of Alexander, the collection of legends telling of his origins, his wars with Persia, invasion of India, and the miraculous deeds and encounters with strange beings in between. These legends had captured the medieval imagination with images of Alexander pulled through the sky by griffins, moving beneath the water in variations on the submarine, and confronting my favorite monstrous humans, the Blemii, the headless people with faces on their chests. The barriers the travelers now crossed were said to be the ones which Alexander had put up to keep out the barbaric tribes and monstrous races. William had now been to the lands beyond the borders, and while his travel seemed to have left him skeptical of any dog-headed men, just the sort of thing which featured heavily in the stories, this great act of Alexander's, this barring of the uncivil from the civilized world, is treated as truth and fact, which had now been lived in a new way. He had been on the other side of that divide, and it hadn't made him cease to believe in it. What did he now think of what was found on the other side? His time with Monka's court had given him access to people who had traveled there from every direction, and he'd heard many things from them. In one conversation, he spoke with a priest who had come from China. Unfortunately, he didn't get any more specific as to what kind of priest this was or where he had come from. But that's not to say he learned nothing at all. He learned of a people who lived in the north and tied varnished bone under their feet and skated over the frozen snow and ice at a speed that enabled them to catch birds and animals. From another Chinese priest, this one dressed in the finest red, he learned of a place in the east, where the rocky cliffs were inhabited by creatures who were built like human beings in every respect, except that their knees did not bend, and they moved along in a kind of hopping and the whole of their little body was covered in hair. These little monkeys of some sort were apparently lured out and made drunk on rice ale so that they could be non-fatally bled in their slumber for the making of a purple dye. He also heard, though he did not believe it, that there was a place beyond China where you did not age but remained just as you were when you had arrived. And what of the monsters William wanted to know? Had any of the monstrous races been seen? He was told they had not. William had been on the other side of the Alexandrian Divide and had seen no dog-headed men nor heard of them, but that does not seem to have shaken his belief in the story of Alexander's Gate. If he had not seen much in the way of monsters, there had certainly been barbarism enough for his tastes, as he'd made clear from his first encounter with the Mongols. And there'd been demonic activity, too. There was that pass the party went through on the way to Monka's encampment, where demons were said to prowl. And then there was the demon William identified as the cause of Monka's wife's sickness. And he heard stories of others, too, when he writes about what he'd learned of the shamans and their roles in Mongol society. Demons, from his perspective at least, play a part in that, being conjured up to dispense oracles or shouting over a dwelling to warn of an escaped Hungarian who hid within. All of that was now on the other side. They came down into the Mugan plain of what is now Azerbaijan. They crossed a bridge of boats, secured to an iron chain where the Kura and Araxis rivers met. And then they followed the Araxes going southwest, and stopping in for wine at the home of Baichu, the commander that Aslan of Lombardy had met with in 1247. 
from November. They followed the river, extremely thankful, I'm sure, to not be spending their winter in the Mongol camp. But it was wintry enough still. Enough so for William to regret not being able to visit the source of the Euphrates because of the great snowfalls which made such side ventures impossible. William and Gosset celebrated the Christmas feast as best they could in a tiny Armenian church, one of what had once been 800, but was now only two, in a once very large and beautiful city, reduced by the Mongols almost to a wilderness. The day after, the church's priest died. Now on this side, they were in a world permeated by magic of a different kind. They were near the church where St. Bartholomew had been martyred, and St. Judas Thaddeus, too and not far away from the mountain where it was claimed Noah's Ark had come to ground, and wood brought down from it to the church by an angel. And from an Armenian bishop, he heard of a prophecy. He'd heard it before, from Armenians in Constantinople, but now he gave it more attention. It was said that a great race of archers would come and conquer the entirety of the east. They would take everything from north down to south, and would come to Constantinople itself, they would take its harbor. But then, one of them, known as the wise man, would enter the city. He would see the churches there, and he would see himself baptized before advising the Franks on how to kill the Mongol leader. Chaos would then reign in the Mongol Empire, and Franks and Armenians alike would take up the pursuit of the shattered enemy, resulting in Frankish rule in Persia. Then would follow the conversion to the Christian faith of all the people of the East and all the unbelievers, and such peace would reign in the world that the living would say to the dead, Alas, for you who have not lived to see these times. Just as the souls in limbo were waiting for the coming of Christ so as to be set free, the bishop told William, so we are waiting, in order to be delivered from this slavery we have been in for so long. The Armenians had a while still to wait. For another three weeks, the snow held them before they could journey on. They reached the northeast of present-day Turkey at the beginning of February, arriving at Ani, the city of a thousand and one churches and capital of the old Armenian kingdom. And William noted that indeed it had a thousand Armenian churches and two mosques. From there it was west to Erzincan, where a terrible earthquake that year had killed 10,000, not counting the poor. The ground visibly split open where they rode and earth piled down from the mountains to clog the valleys. More earthly violence was ahead at the site of the Mongols' 1243 victory over the Seljuk Sultanate. There, the quake had opened up a great lake on the plain where battle had occurred, and William seemed to savor the thought that, quote, the whole plain had opened her mouth to swallow now the blood of the Muslims. By the end of April, they were in Savas, the site of the Forty Martyrs, the Christian Roman soldiers who had been executed by exposure on the frozen lake in the 4th century. The travelers were not proceeding as quickly as they might. Their guide was intentionally holding them back so as to be able to make the most of the requisition order he carried. And when they were in areas where it didn't apply, his behavior was worse. He'd pocket the money intended for food, and then seize a sheep by force when the opportunity presented itself. William didn't complain, though. He was too concerned about the possibility of he and the servants being slain or sold into slavery. They did eventually reach Konya, the Seljuk capital, around the 19th of April, 1255, and their guide presented them there to the sultan. Between the sultan and a helpful Genoese trader, 
Friar William and his company were dispatched onto the coast, despite their lack of gifts for their guide. And now William was only a few hops from the end of his journey. It was Cyprus on June the 16th, and Antioch on the 29th, and from these he traveled in the company of another friar, arriving at Tripoli in time for the meeting of their chapter on the 15th of August. It was 27 months since he'd embarked on the Black Sea. And William didn't want his journey to end there. At least in writing, he expressed the wish that he could report to King Louis in person, which would have meant traveling to France to see him. But the minister of his order wouldn't have it. Maybe it was discomfort over William's coziness with the king. Maybe the pressing need for him to remain in the region and work. Maybe William didn't really want to do any more traveling after all. Whatever the cause, now that he had returned, he was to teach in Acre and could communicate whatever he needed to the French king in writing. Just as well for us that that was the case, or perhaps we would not have such a record to go by. The Franciscan wrapped up his report with an assessment of the Anatolian situation. It was overwhelmingly not Turkish, he reassured his king. It was Greek and Armenian and the Seljuk Sultanate was weakened by scheming, plotting, infighting, and defeat by the Mongols. Hence it is, he said, that Turkia is ruled by a boy, possessed of no funds, few warriors, and numerous enemies. The Nicene Emperor is sickly, and is at war with the Bulgarian Tsar, who is likewise a mere lad, and whose power has been eroded by the Mongol yoke. It would be so easy, he was telling the king, for Christian forces to pass through or conquer all these regions. The time was ripe, and it was but forty days' journey with wagons to reach Constantinople from Cologne, and fewer than that to then travel on to Armenia, and you didn't need to pay the cost of travel by sea or endure its dangers. Finally, if the Christian peasants were only willing to travel in the way the Mongol princes moved, and be content with a similar diet, they could conquer the whole world. The friar was extremely enthusiastic for King Louis to return to the crusade, and Louis would be back eventually, but not until 1270. Even then, he would not be going overland into Anatolia, as his friar friend had suggested. He would take the sea route, and he would die of dysentery outside Tunis, roughly a month after landing. What else had William reported? Unlike Carpine, he had little to say of tactics, capabilities, or recommendations on military matters of any kind. But he did cover other points extensively, giving information on the various peoples who lived within the enormous Mongol domains, their religious practices, the Christians of the East, if through a distorted glass, the political positions of Batu and Monka, and their reception of embassies and other missions. Potential crusades and the Mongol use of weapons were not the main thrust of his journey, after all. What was William's conclusion as to his religious expedition among the Mongols? First, we should note that he failed to find those German slaves which he'd been asking after. He passed quite close, but knew nothing of it at the time, only later learning that they had all been relocated and employed in mining and in the making of weapons, another abandoned splinter of written history, to my knowledge at least. Then there are his thoughts on further religious ventures. In Annie, that city of a thousand and one churches, he'd met a party of Dominicans who were on their way to Mongol lands with letters from the Pope to Sartak and Monka, asking that they be allowed to remain and preach. It was very similar to what William and Bartholomew had been doing, but astonishingly, 
They had only one serving lad in poor health, who knew Turkish and a few words of French. That didn't scream success, and William had a pretty good idea of what kind of welcome they'd receive. He told them of his own experience, that the letters would indeed get them through safely if that was what they wanted, but that if their only reason for being there was to preach, then they would be listened to by nobody, especially without a capable interpreter. William, by now, really understood the value of good translation. In the conclusion of his audience with Monka, and in the closing words of his report to Louis, William further emphasized this idea that a purely religious mission to the Mongols was pointless. In that final exchange with the Khan, he'd bemoaned that, as an ambassador, he was not free to say what he would like. An ambassador could speak his mind and would always be asked if there was more he wished to say. As a simple visitor, invited to appear before the Khan, the friar could only answer the questions which were put to him. And his report ended with much the same thought, that no friar should make any further journey of the kind he had made to the Mongols, for to do so was futile. William had shown up in costume, with beautiful books and sacred objects, and chanted in song, but it had made no dent in their courtly attitude of curiosity. Friar William had been received as but another exotic tidbit washed up on the Mongols' beach. Now if the Pope were to send a bishop as an official ambassador and make a real show of it, to do so in some style and to answer the Mongols' letters in strength, then that would be useful. However, he concludes, the effort would need to be supported by a good interpreter, several interpreters, in fact, and plentiful supplies. No more shoestring operations, in other words, featuring friars in ones or twos, to appear as humble little figures before the emperor. What was called for was the big gesture, a grand show of power to match that of the Khan and to address him on equal footing. A difficult thing to project all the way to Karakorum. Finally, we can look at William's words as he left Monka's encampment, a quantitative summary of his time. We baptized there a total of six souls. It was no great turning of the tide. And that's where we'll leave Friar William to his teaching in Acre. There are other stories in his report, and maybe I'll return to them at some point. I'd love, for example, to do something from the perspective of the apparently incompetent interpreter Homo Dei slash Abdullah, but that would need to be more speculative than what I've been doing here. Then there's the Khan having learned that 400 of the assassins had been sent in disguise to kill him, which is clearly the plot of a movie. And there's more, too, but that'll have to be for another time. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you've been enjoying this run of episodes on the Mongols, and travelers to them, because there will be more on the way. In fact, the most famous of travelers among the Mongols is still to come, and I'll soon be starting in on the story of Marco Polo and Kublai Khan. But we need to get there first. So next episode, we'll set the table with the rise of the brothers Hulagu and Kublai. Talk to you then. Circus will return.